This is Recorded Future, Inside Threat Intelligence for Cybersecurity. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 156 of the Recorded Future podcast. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire. Yolanda Smith is head of cybersecurity at Sweetgreen, a fast casual restaurant chain that focuses on salads with over 100 locations coast to coast in the U.S. She shares with us the challenges of securing the array of elements involved in a farm-to-table food service organization, from supply chains to customer credit cards. We'll learn about her humble beginnings in the Air Force, her approach to problem-solving and collaboration, as well as her pioneering role in threat hunting, before many people were even calling it that. Stay with us. up in Houston, Texas, and um, always was the kind of kid that was uh, interested in breaking stuff, figuring out how things worked. Um, I was mm. that kid that broke our very first computer, um, trying to figure out what was going <laughs> on with it, and I got in a lot of trouble. I always knew that the, like just figuring out how things work and really understanding assumptions was something I was passionate about. I got, was lucky enough to earn an ROTC scholarship, and um, I went to the University of Notre Dame in South Bend, Indiana. And I studied computer science, and I will tell you, um, it was tough for me. It was really, really dry and boring. Not because, you know, the, the monks and the nuns weren't, you know, thrilling. It was, it was because it was very sort of straight-laced and very, you know, these two pieces together equal this third piece. Um, I wanted to understand why we needed to put those two pieces together in the first place. Um, mm. So I, I graduated, I, I did my thing. And um, after with an ROTC scholarship, what ends up happening is that you are required to serve, basically pay back that, that scholarship in, in service in the military. So mm. I joined the Air Force as a second lieutenant. Um, and my very first duty station was uh, overseas at RAF Lakenheath in England. No kidding, after the Air Force paid, I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of dollars for me to go to school and for me to go get trained and um, and to come out on the other side of it as a person who was ready to take on the world, my very first job was in the mailroom. Um, oh, <laughs> I worked in the post office uh, for the United States Air Force, your, your tax dollars at work. Um, wow. Yeah. And honestly, that was probably the very best thing that could have happened to me. Uh, because I had the opportunity to talk to people and to, um, understand really their, their challenges. And while it wasn't strictly a security assignment, it gave me an opportunity to figure out uh, and and to really think through how I could actually make things better. Um, and again, what assumptions that we were making in our processes that were making it really, really hard for people to, um, achieve their end goals. It, which is getting mail. Um, I'll tell you, overseas, we we had two days that we cared about, Christmas and Tuesdays. <laughs> Tuesdays <laughs> was Netflix Day. That was back when Netflix was still sending out DVDs. And that, I mean, like it was like clockwork, Monday night at about um, 8 p.m., we'd get this huge truck that came in and it would just be chock full of Netflix DVDs. And and 
by Tuesday morning at 8 a.m., we had to line out the door for people trying to get their stuff. That was an opportunity for me to say, hey, we, we know this pattern. We know what it was going to be. We know that, you know, we have a, this huge demand. Let's figure out how we, how we start to um, change that assumption, turn it on its ear, and, and uh, get people their, their materials without having to wait for this huge crush. So um, hmm. luckily we— And how did you do that? What, what was your approach? Yeah, so we ended up having to work with our upstream uh, distributor. So the mail doesn't just come straight off the the truck directly to the the, the final destination. It it came it came to Feltwell, which is another uh, uh, RAF base, and then from there it went down to um, Ixworth, uh, which is another RAF base, and then it finally came to RAF Lake and Heath, where we had the vast majority of actual. Um, consumers. We were a service base. We had the largest post office, uh, a large U.S. post office on the United Kingdom. Yeah, we ended up working with our upstream distributor that was sitting at customs. And we said, Mm. hey, why don't you split this into two routes? You know that you're going to have smaller routes, you know, going into Feltwell and going into Ixworth, but you know that the big route's coming in uh, at, at RAF Lake and Heath. Why don't you just basically directly put a, put a, put another truck out and go directly to us where you can actually service your customers, the, the vast majority of your customers quicker. They can get their materials without having to wait on Tuesday. And, oh, by the way, it, it means that we actually can lower the demand on other types of, of mail that we were expecting, especially around Christmas. That was nuts. Mm. And it was it was a simple matter of hey we we have two things we have one problem let's kind of split that big problem into two problems smaller problems and solve for that and that's really been the the guiding principle of <laughs> of my career is take a big problem break it into small problems and solve what you know um, you know it it strikes me that a lot of people would have been discouraged by coming out of you know their educational experience um, being sent overseas and and landing in the mailroom. And I could imagine a lot of people just sort of going going with the flow and, and you know, not rocking the boat and just sort of marking out their time until their next assignment came. But but not you. You you took this as an opportunity to go in there and make a difference. Yeah. I, well, I, I, that's always been my style. Um, I never want to set, settle for what's put in front of me. Um, one of the things that I had, a, I had a boss uh, that would tell me later in my career in the Air Force who would tell me, um, you know, the reward for good work is more work. And so, um, <laughs> and so I got plucked out of the mailroom. I got put on the help desk. Again, it's another opportunity to basically the network control center help desk. Another opportunity to talk to people and, you know, working mid shifts at night when you have angry generals that call in and say, hey, how come I can't get, you know, whatever weird software that they're trying to install in their computer working that they wasn't supposed to have in the first place, right? Like mm-hmm. that's an opportunity to to really try and understand what problem they're actually trying to solve for. Um, and again, throughout my career, it was a situation where people thought that things were all going to be set in stone and, and, you know, the path was predefined. And then it turned out that, yeah, we can, we can make a difference. Yeah, we can kind of turn our assumptions on their ear and rather than say, no, you can't do that or no, that doesn't make sense or no, we're not going to try. We're going to at least entertain the question. And then from that point, um, try and figure out what, what steps we can take to, to actually solve that problem. 
How do you handle the diplomatic side of that? I'm thinking particularly in the military, when you have a chain of command, I can imagine not everyone uh, responds with open arms to someone who's coming through and trying to shake things up. Well, yeah, that's that is tough uh, because you know at a certain point you you have to say you know I'm a I'm a second lieutenant, the lowest rung on <laughs> on on the the military chain of command ladder. Even you know, see most people are like, okay, LT, go go sit in the corner and and read a book. <laughs> um, but it it becomes it, honestly my my approach to that has always been in a partnership. Um, like working to partner with people versus trying to use rank or trying to use a clearly established sort of power structure. Yes, you have a major or a general or a senior officer who's really upset that they can't get something to work. It's not so much a matter of of them saying, I'm a major and I want to get it done. It's I'm a person and I'm and I'm struggling and I need help. And that's how I always thought about it. Um, and even when I was the person that was in command and I was the person that was in charge and I had someone that said, Hey, Captain Smith, uh, this, this thing that you want me to work on, it's, it's, it's too hard. It's, it, it doesn't make sense. And I think it's stupid. They didn't say it like that. It was always more diplomatic. It was like, <laughs> it's stupid, ma'am. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> um, but, but it, it was a situation where it was like, no, this is, it's not about Captain Smith and, you know, um, and Sergeant so-and-so. It was y- Yolanda Smith and, and Bob Jones that, that are trying to work it through and solve a problem. And that's always been my leadership style is not so much to say, you know, I'm wearing rank on my shoulders. I have this fancy title. I have this, um, I have this, this thing on, on, on my, this title bar or something like that on, on my desk, it's, I'm here to help people. And I've always believed in servant leadership in that way. Well, take us through the rest of your military experience and then your transition to the private sector. Yeah. So, um, after, after being at, uh, Aria Flakenheath for a couple years, um, my next duty station was at Fort Meade, um, also known as the National Security Agency. And I got to spend four wonderful years really getting to do the thing that um, I was desiring to do um, hmm. uh, when I when I first got out of the uh, out of school. When I joined Fort Meade, um, they wanted me to join this new little you know unknown outfit called the Advanced Network Operations Center. It was hunting, and we had no one was ever no one certainly in the DoD had codified it that way. Um, mm. we, we had had blue team operations, certainly in the air force, but that was very, it was almost a, a, a paperwork drill, if I'm being honest. And we had red mm. team operations and, but that was mostly like war driving and people that were like, you know, patting themselves on the back that they could, you know, drive around the base with Pringles cans, but no one <laughs> was doing hunting, not the way that, that we needed to. We had had some very, very significant uh, events that had taken place that led the director of the National Security Agency at the time, Keith Alexander, to say, I want to know what our adversaries want to know about us. We, I was the very first military hire in that office, and my, my, my job was to basically be the mission commander. I picked exactly what, what things we were going to go and take a look at. I um, sat on uh, a watch floor with two other peers, uh, they happened to be in the Navy, and um, we, we 
looked to see, hey, who was actually, you know, accessing computers in the State Department? Who was actually accessing computers in, you know, on, on the Air Force networks? What do those things have in common? What are they actually pulling back if they are pulling anything back? Um, we put we deployed sensors all over the globe uh, in order to be able to get a better understanding of what our adversaries cared about uh, as, as they were, um, you know, as the, the cyber threat was becoming more and more real. Um, and then, and people were starting to really st- stand up and pay attention and recognize that, yes, it, it, it can actually have a negative impact on our ability to do our jobs if an adversary can, can get certain information about us. I, I, you know, that's kind of one of those, those weird nitnoid things that no one ever, you know, you're never going to find on the Wikipedia page. Hey, who was the first one to do hunting? I, I did that. I did hunting. For the, <laughs> it was you. It was me. I did it. I did hunting. The very first hunting operations for the, the Department of Defense. And, and by extension, wow. we, we, uh, we took those concepts and we pushed them back down to the military services so they can do their own hunting operations. And then if you were to sort of fast forward the tape by four years, I my next duty station was at uh, um, Lackland Air Force Base and um, working for the, uh, the 90th Information Operations Wing. And that wing actually happened to have our, our blue team uh, squadron who were very, very fired up and amped up to do this new thing that they were calling hunting. <laughs> that's adorable isn't yeah, it yeah i was like oh that's nice you're doing hunting okay. but they they took it further than than i ever possibly could um and they 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 took all the things that i was seeing as an individual and they turned it into an actual competency that you know even today you look at you know companies even like recorded future you look at companies that you know that that have hunting as a mission, right? Those came from what we started in a little tiny office in the, in the National Security Agency. What sort of lessons did you learn um, from that perspective of being a trailblazer when you're doing something for the first time? What sort of things do you have to deal with? You have to deal with a lot of doubt, and you have to deal with a lot of of people that that just it it, it doesn't seem like it's a valuable thing yet. Do you know what I mean? You don't you don't have the data mm-hmm. to back you up. So you you're it, it really requires a lot of and this isn't me being a humble bragger, but it requires charisma and it requires clarity of vision. Um mm. I'm I'm not a believer in FUD. I don't uh I don't think that uh that you know fear gets you very far. Um especially in security because it 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 does eventually disintegrate and you're like, "Okay, well, you know, it looks like you're you're full of crap." What what I try to do, especially when I'm talking to, you know, even now as I'm talking to people who may not have a background in security or even as I'm talking to people who have a background in security but don't necessarily know exactly what I'm trying to achieve, it, I try to break it down to what really the assumptions that, that I'm coming to the table with, what I think is is a, a, an approach to understanding the problem and solving the problem and then I give, like, again, a, again, I, I partner with people to say, here's where I need your help in order to either dispel this assumption or to, to prove it out so we can, actually, we can actually start making progress on solving the problem. When we had to get sensors deployed across, you know, Army bases, Navy installations, ships, um, uh, Air Force bases, we, had, we wanted to put a sensor on an, on an F-15. They didn't let us do that. But we wanted, we wanted to put sensors on planes. We wanted them everywhere. 
Um, so that way we could really say, hey, we, we want to see what, what our adversary knows about us. Um, and I will tell you, walking in as a captain into an army base with, you know, no kidding, we've got a colonel, a general officer saying, if there's a problem on my base, I'm the one that's going to know about it and I'm the one that's going to fix it. Right. I see. That mm-hmm. was one of the situations where it's like, OK, well, you know, what, what we're trying to do is help you know more. Right. It, and it really came down to um, just just, again, partnering with people and having clarity of vision and, and really being able to say this is this is what we are concerned about. And we think that you should be concerned, too. So uh, how did you wind up your uh, the part of your career in the Air Force and, and then move into the private sector? It's a funny story. Well, not really funny, but um, <laughs> I, while I was at the at Lackland Air Force Base, that was my last duty station. I had an opportunity to um, to get involved in our cyber defense software capabilities um, flight. I was the flight commander there, and one day we read there was somebody. One of my contractors uh, put an put an article on my desk from Wired Magazine that said. Hey, the Predator's been hacked. It's got all this malware on it. The Predator drone rep- weapon system, of course. Hmm. And I said, well, Eric, well, we, that's our job. We can fix that. <laughs> that we, hmm. That's what we do. We, we fix those things. And we, we, top, we stop those things from happening. So uh, rewind, uh, fast forward the tape and say, you know, nine months later, we actually fixed it. We, we did it. <laughs> we we deployed a capability that made it virtually impossible for for someone to interdict and to uh, deploy any sort of uh, unknown software onto the Predator weapon system. And that was one of those jewel in the crown moments. And I was like, you know what? I don't know. How, I mean, I've checked off all the boxes. I've done the coolest thing that I can possibly think of doing. <laughs> Come a long way from the mailroom, right? Come a long way from the mailroom. This is super cool. And <laughs> and I wanted to do more of that stuff. And again, the reward for good work is more work. So um, I actually got pulled out of, of that, that opportunity into um, more of a staff role. And um, as I got to that, that role... Uh, you know, I, I like to think I was doing a pretty good job. And my commander uh, at the time said, you know, Yolanda, um, you're senior captain now. You're you're going to be moving on to major. Your opportunities to continue to do, you know, that kind of niche, cool stuff like that, you're, you're going to see less of that. And it's going to be put into the hands of your your folks, your people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, well, I, I really want, I've always loved the idea of, of, you know, being a leader and making sure that people have opportunities to excel. I wanted to stay close to the work. And that's, that's really what was the defining moment for me. I was like, okay, it's, uh, you know, it's time for me to step back. Um, it was going to, for me, be many more staff roles and many more, you know, um, it, probably a stint at the Pentagon where I was going to end up fetching coffee for some general. And I was like, you know. That's that's not what I want to do, and I've I've I love my time in the Air Force. I, I I'm thankful for it. I've learned a whole heck of a lot, and now I want to take what I've learned and, and move on. So that was really the the, the time in which I stepped away, and um, I decided that I was going to um, move to Boston. I I got a role as a application engineer at a little company called Digital Lumens, and mm. they made industrial lights. And I was like, oh, this is this is the weirdest thing I've ever heard of. What do they want a cyber person for? 
what I mean, what am I going to do at a, at a lighting company? And they were like, hey, we've got this cool thing that, that we're concerned about. It's called Zigbee. Our lights communicate over this new weird protocol that, uh, that people are a little concerned about, we're concerned about, and we want, we want you to break it. And that's exactly what I did. <laughs> <laughs> I did. And um, it was one of those. Hold my beer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was one of those things where, I w- again, it was like, this is a cool thing that no one else is working on, that no one else is, is, is trying to do. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we're going to have more and more networked likes. IoT is, is going to be the, you know, it's going to be everywhere. Let's figure out how we do it in a way that, that not just allows us to turn lights on and, and, uh, and do that, you know, from the comfort of our homes, but also to do it in a way that prevents someone from, from waging an effect that, that, we, don't, that, we, that we don't want. We don't want someone mm-hmm. who's not supposed to have access to the lights to be able to turn them off in the middle of a shift on a factory floor, that would be mm-hmm. a safety issue. So um, that's, that's exactly what I got to work on. And uh, it's, been, it's been a wild ride ever since then. I've had roles as a product manager for uh, another cybersecurity company called um, Pony Express, P-W-N-I-E Express, oh. mm-hmm. um, yep. as well as uh, I worked as business information security office analyst um, for Target, that was actually my last role before my current role, um, where I was basically responsible for the security of their digital footprint. So Target.com, mm. the web app, those types of things. Um, that was that was my job to say, hey, we want to really make sure that no one's <laughs> no one's installing keyloggers and hey, that that new crazy fun thing with digital skimmers. Let's make sure that we don't let that happen. We actually right. referenced uh, a lot of the material that the recorded future um, analysts brought forth in order to help us to to get our arms around that that threat and uh, prevent it from um, causing any problems for our guests. So, kudos to recorded future. And now you're at Sweet Green, um, and and that's uh, really working with the supply chain for for food. Mm-hmm. What yeah. challenges do you have there? Oh my gosh. <laughs> It's 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 twofold. Um, the the big challenges at Sweetgreen are that no one ever thinks that a salad company um, or really that any sort of quick serve retail should have a problem with with cybersecurity. A hmm. lot of the the things that I deal with on day to day basis are around uh, changing mindsets. Um, what you will find with technology, especially in quick serve retail, whether it's sweet green or, you know, any of your favorite, you know, fast food joints, um, is that technology tends to be cobbled together um, very quickly in order to get you to just to swipe your credit card, get your food and go. That's 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 just sort of the paradigm. That's what it's been right. for the last I don't know how many you know decades. And what we're finding is that, yeah, you, you can cobble together all of these different technologies with these very haphazard APIs that don't really quite work. But once again, we make a lot of assumptions in doing that. And the assumptions that we make is that if I put um, something in place that, that, um, that can take a digital order next to something in place that can uh, take a credit card from a customer in a store, that those two things just work together perfectly well. And that's where the risk is, and that's what I've been challenged to do: is to say, "Hey, that those two seams that you've that you've got together, in order to make that digital channel work with that um, in-store channel, that means that I have to pass off some very sensitive data from one place to the other. 
let's make sure that we are protecting that and not assuming that that API is doing all the heavy lifting for us. Um, mm. So yeah, that it, and it's it's a massive challenge. I'll be honest, um, and a lot of it too comes down to as you mentioned the the supply chain. Um, mm-hmm. Food itself is is you know that that's our life force, right? And we make assumptions about where our food's coming from. We make assumptions about who's handling our food. We make assumptions about where that food is stored. At Sweetgreen, we're looking at new opportunities to track all like no kidding from the seed to the salad. Hmm. Um, and that tracking mechanism obviously is something that someone might want to exploit. And that someone might want to uh, uh, interdict in some way in order to cause us harm as a company, or to make it impossible for you know our our guests to um, to to get the things that they want. We're concerned about someone changing the ingredients around so that someone with an allergy or something like that winds up with with you know food that could really hurt them in their in their salad. Mm-hmm. That'd be horrible. We would not want that, and we want to make sure that we have a good understanding of what's happening with food at every stage of, of its life cycle, including the point at which it leaves our store and gets to somebody's fork. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, I, I want to switch gears a little bit and, and talk to you about your perspective when it comes to threat intelligence and the, the role it plays in, in the types of things you do. As a blanket statement, I would say the role threat intelligence plays for us at this stage in, in, in our history is that we are deeply concerned about commodity malware, right? We like we know that we have actors such as Fin7, Fin5, like Fin6, all those like big hunka chunka threat actors out there that would just love an opportunity to find their find their way onto our point of sale systems and actually um, you know, start doing some scraping or or, you know, basically sell access to those point of sale systems. So, um, that's that's really where threat intelligence has helped us is in being able to say, hey, who's talking about us? Who's looking at us? Who's who 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 what's happening with XYZ actor and what what are they focused on right now? So that's one of the things that we're looking at recorded future to help us with is to say it's not just a matter of who's who's focused on sweet green, although that is probably the the biggest thing that we're concerned about. It's the second of and what what are our what what's happening on the adversarial side that could could ultimately Cause us harm, and how do we bolster our defenses against that? Um, mm. It's it's really two sides of the of the same coin, but we are we're we're looking at we're, we're looking at it from from both angles. Specifically, what threat intelligence has enabled us to do is to start looking at things like um, our our actual development pipeline and say things like, "Hey, how do we know if a customer has had an account takeover? Do we have?" our defenses in place and do we have our detections in place that will a allow us to figure out that that's happened and b see the other side of it if it ends up on the dark web and then be able to actually help that customer to to recover in the event that it um it it ends up being an account takeover that uh that could that could harm them what is your advice uh for the folks who are just getting started in the industry when when you're mentoring people uh, what sort of uh, tips do you have for them? I get this question a lot. The And the answer is always uh, learn how things are supposed to work before you learn how to break it. Um, I can't tell you how many people come up to me and it's like, I want to be a hacker. And I was like, okay, well, tell me the TCP IP stack, right? Like 
and and it's always sort of well you know what does that have to do with anything well it's everything that's all of it <laughs> Mm. Um, so learn how things are supposed to work before you, before you go off trying to break it. Um, I go back to the, my previous statement of, you know, I, I want to exploit assumptions. Assumptions come from the fact that people said, these are how these things are going to be put together. And this is how this thing is going to work. Learn what those assumptions were, because all of those pieces come into play when you are trying to go off and say, what does an adversary care about? How is it that an adversary could exploit this? How is it that we can defend ourselves against this? You have to understand how things are supposed to work before you can even start down the path of 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 going in and saying, okay, well, I, I want to be, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Mega Hacker. I think the mm-hmm. other piece of it is that if I was going to recommend a starting role, honestly, make friends with your with with people in IT. And if you can't make friends, go be in IT. Like <laughs> Go be a sysadmin for a little while. Go work on a help desk for a little while. You are going to get probably more experience and exposure um, doing a role like that in a very short amount of time and just in terms of how things work and how people expect them to work and how people are using systems. That's a wealth of knowledge that will carry you forward into security and throughout your security career. Our thanks to Yolanda Smith from Sweetgreen for joining us. Don't forget to sign up for the Recorded Future Cyber Daily email, where every day you'll receive the top results for trending technical indicators that are crossing the web. Cyber news, targeted industries, threat actors, exploited vulnerabilities, malware, suspicious IP addresses, and much more. You can find that at recordedfuture.com slash intel. We hope you've enjoyed the show and that you'll subscribe and help spread the word among your colleagues and online. The Recorded Future podcast production team includes coordinating producer Monica Tadros, executive producer Greg Barrett. The show is produced by The Cyberwire with editor John Petrick, executive producer Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.